You're listening to The Maastricht Diplomat. Welcome back to episode three of Understanding Europe. We're centering this episode around the rather elusive term of digital sovereignty. You may have heard it. You may have even heard it mentioned with digital autonomy or strategic autonomy or any of those other terms. Or more recently, how it's been framed as an opposite to digital dependence. To understand this further, we sat down with Mariello Weimas, who is an expert in the field. We discussed the term and its wider ramifications in the world. Welcome back, everyone, to episode three. And joining us online all the way from Finland is Dr. Mariela Weimars, an assistant professor in cybersecurity and politics at FASOS. This academic year, she is on research leave as a core fellow at the Helsinki Collegium for Advanced Studies. She conducts research on internet governance with a focus on the impact of internet policy on human rights. Her research is guided by an interest in the precarious balance between protecting citizens, infrastructures and institutions against cyber threats and safeguarding rights and freedoms, from the right to privacy to the freedom of the press. So who better to talk to when we're trying to understand digital sovereignty than Dr. Mariela? Without further ado, welcome Dr. Mariela. It's a pleasure having you with us in this episode. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Let's kick it off. Firstly, what is digital sovereignty? In our first attempt to try to answer this question, on November 8th, we had an interview with Commissioner Vestaga. Here's a clip. I'm joined by Executive Vice President of the European Commission for uh, Europe Fit for a Digital Age, and importantly, also the Commissioner for Competition, mm -hmm. Margarita Vestaga. Uh, thank you for being here. Well, thank you for having me and, and for managing the tongue twister of my title. <laughs> <laughs> so over the past years, there have been many loose definitions of a digital so sovereignty. You yourself in 2021 have defined it as our ability to ensure that the key decisions that will shape our digital economies and societies are taken within our European democracies. Notably, you placed uh, an emphasis that this should not come at the cost of openness, um, but also be weighed against the risks of dependence. Taking into, uh, into consideration the events of the last year, specifically the developments in, uh, with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the subsequent energy crisis, and the continued strain that these crises have on our multi multilateral system, um, how would you define digital sovereignty now? Well, I think I would basically just underline everything. Mm -hmm. uh, because I think it is more important now than it was and it was already important. Because what we have seen is what happens if we have dependencies. We would be in a very different position had we not been so dependent on Russian fossil fuel. Um, we would be in a different position if we weren't so dependent on very few suppliers on raw materials. Uh, for instance, palladium, a very important uh, raw material in the car production uh, industry, comes mainly from Ukraine and then some from Russia all of that almost non-accessible. So what we have learned is the importance of being able to take our own decisions. But the paradox in Europe is that part of our prosperity is created because we're open for business, because European businesses have a global outlook, because they work with global suppliers, because they have customers all over the planet. 
And of course, the thing is that being able to take your own decisions is not the same as saying, I want to live on an almost deserted island. Mm. No, I want to take my own decisions, but I realize that we are all dependent on one another. And I think it's important that we can live with these paradoxes and, and that we can find ways to balance the dilemmas that being dependent on many different uh, partners and being able to take our own decisions. It's a single supplier dependency that we have seen to be very, very damaging for us being able to take our own decisions. Jumping off of what Commissioner Vestager said, where does Vestager's definition, in your opinion, differ from the academic one? What I think is interesting about the way that she defines this is that she she really emphasizes that there are vulnerabilities that result from dependencies that we have, but at the same time that there's an inherent paradox in the position of the EU here, uh, so that the commitment to having uh, having an open world, to also being integrated in this world, and depending on it for your prosperity, that actually, that actually means that you cannot just cut yourself off completely. So I think that's very interesting about the uh, the definition that she presents. Um, at the same time, of course, the de- academic definition is not necessarily different in the way that uh, academics try to understand how terminology is used. And so it's much more that we, uh, like our, our interest in digital sovereignty is perhaps very different. So we try to understand, so what do they actually mean by digital sovereignty? How is that changing over time? Uh, how are they using it? So what are also some perhaps... Uh, like the power relationships behind a certain use of the term digital uh, sovereignty. Uh, so in that sense, it's more of our commitment to the term is quite different, trying to understand how everyone is using it and also um, interpreting what the possible implications could be. So if indeed uh, some years ago the EU was speaking about digital sovereignty without making this clear that actually they cannot disentangle themselves from the global and I also do not want to do that, uh, that's actually something that has developed over time. That wasn't that clear in the beginning, even though, of course, if you would look at it and think, so how could the EU try and implement this? Then it was very clear that they would not be able to do it in the same way that, for example, uh, China is able to pursue. Uh, they are simply very, very different, and therefore they also have to approach it very differently. Uh, so it's, uh, that's where, how I would define like what the difference is. Uh, th- that we are really trying to understand all the different ways in which you could define digital sovereignty and trying to understand, so why did they choose this particular definition and what does that actually mean? Mm-hmm. And something you mentioned is also this evolving term over time. So could you maybe help us walk back how to frame or how Vestaga's framing of digital sovereignty as the idea of one on the one side having agency, on the other hand, avoiding dependency how that reflects in the kind of the evolving definition of the term, at least in, in public use, especially in, in Brussels, for example. Uh, well, if we look at the, uh, like the origins of this idea of digital sovereignty, then we do end up more with the authoritarian states uh, who have really started off this entire discussion. Uh, and this has started, for example, also in uh, more like international bodies where they discuss uh, internet governance. For a very long time, uh, the West, so Western democracies, were pushing this idea that everything needs to be global, everything needs to be open, and for example, also the internet itself just needs to be this very open space. Uh, at the same time, there was a pushback from states who wanted to assert more control, so wanted to be able to actually control information flows on their territories, just like they would do their territories as well, right? 
That's also where we have the uh, the analogy of the sovereignty, so that you would want to have state control over this digital space, just like you have over the territorial space, so the geographical space. Uh, so that's really where the, the idea, in a way, comes from. Uh, so you could also say that, in that respect, it's a little bit of a, of a reaction. Uh, so it's a response. Um, and at the same time, we can also think of the EU using that term also as being a reaction. Uh, but then to the, the discovery that actually not all is good in the digital world. So especially uh, fears about foreign interference. Uh, so this is really about being able to have more control over what happens on social media, for example. So pushing back against the dominant position that US-based firms have uh, in the EU. Uh, so that is one element of it. So trying to be more um, capable in responding to the threat of foreign interference, especially after like 2016, so when the, the Russia interfered in the uh, the US elections. We have also some concerns about Brexit for similar reasons. Uh, so that is one part of it, so really responding to that. Um, at the same time, if you look more to uh, like technical infrastructure, then we also come to topics like uh, dependency on China, which in recent years has become very geopoliticized, so that we are much more concerned about this. We do not see them only as a supplier. Uh, we do not think, well, no matter where this little device comes from, uh, whether it's US produced or Chinese produced, it's fine. Chinese might even be cheaper. And now we are actually very concerned. So then we think, well, actually using technology that's produced by China then also allows them to f make to take advantage of that. Uh, so, for example, to be able to uh, maybe they have access to the data that actually runs through there. Uh, so th this is a second line where, again, it is very much a response uh, to new concerns. So new concerns about what China might be willing to do, what China might be capable of doing. And then thinking, what does that actually mean for our communications infrastructure? Should we be more alert? Uh, have we been like, asleep behind the wheel, so to say? So you should really see it as a response. So just thinking about digital sovereignty, saying like, oh, we actually ha do not have enough control and we should be reasserting control. We have been way too relaxed about all of this. So we, on the one hand, against the US, against these firms. On the other hand, against, for example, uh, China in terms of the actual the infrastructure and other uh, equipment that we use. But still, there has been some development, and it's largely also because the, the terminology is used in a way that is quite vague. So oftentimes it's not really defined. Different actors have very different understandings behind the same terms. And more and more, um, the EU is also realizing that actually if you use this term of digital sovereignty, so the same term that these authoritarian states use to try and push for more state-led intervention and so on, more assertion of the boundaries online, then that actually pushes you in a certain direction as well, and in a direction that does not match the values that the EU tries to promote, so that you might actually not want to use that term. And you see that, that they're now switching very slowly to other terms, so some that are also perhaps a bit more well-defined. Uh, so now you see more things like uh, strategic autonomy, which I think is uh, is more clear in the way that it indeed it emphasizes that it's not just about sovereignty. It's not that everything needs to be produced on your territory. It's not that everything needs to be yours. It is much more about having decision power, just like we saw in the definition that Vistaka also gave. So it's much more about being able to set the rules, being able to enforce them. So it's much more about autonomy in that sense. So being sufficiently self-sufficient 
to be able uh, to to respond to challenges, to respond to threats, uh, so in being able to to switch suppliers if you may choose so, or if one supplier does not come through. Uh, so it has really um, gone through all of these different stages where all these different actors are trying to define what does this term mean, and is that actually something that uh, that fits our objectives? So when we look at the word sovereign and digital sovereignty in the way you're defining it or explaining it, then the sovereignty is national sovereignty, not individual sovereignty, not, not you as a consumer. It's more than the national sovereignty. Did I get that right? Uh, yes, I think that in most of the discussions, we need to think about the, the, the digital counterpart to, to state sovereignty. Uh, so we have the idea that states are sovereign uh, across their territory. So that means that, for example, uh, like a foreign state is not allowed to just cross into your territory. So your your the boundaries are inviolable. Uh, it means that they they should not interfere in your domestic affairs, uh, all of that. And digital sovereignty is often thought to be the digital counterpart to that. So that also via digital means, states are not allowed to interfere in the domestic affairs of other states. Uh, you're not allowed to uh, conduct an attack, just like you would not be allowed to conduct a military attack and so on. But I think indeed you're right that uh, there's also this other level to it. Uh, so where does the individual actually come in? So the assertion of your individual rights and how they are protected. And the interesting thing about the EU is that actually the protection of individual human rights is something that the EU really tries to promote and tries to embed in all of its policies. So you do see this quite a lot also in the, the actual digital policies that the EU puts out. So for example, the GDPR, so this is really about the protection of your data, right? Your personal data. Uh, so there you see where these things can align, uh, that because this aligns with the values of the EU, the values of its member states, this protection of uh, fundamental human rights, uh, that it then it, it goes to this other level as well, where it actually becomes part of protecting these European values and wanting to make sure that those are embedded in the actual norms uh, that guide how, for example, the internet functions. Uh, so there are those two things aligned, but oftentimes the discussion is really about states. So what are states allowed to do? Are they allowed to set the rules? And then in, in our case, when you speak about Europe, then setting the rules often means embedding protection of human rights. So is that a way that you think the EU is also trying to export these human rights norms by basically claiming judicial right over cyberspace? Yes, I would say so. Um, of course, the, the, um, the starting position for the EU is that they are not the biggest producer of things. So they cannot necessarily um, guarantee their position to be able to make decisions by being the producer of everything. So they have to do it differently and they go from the top. So they, they use governance, so setting the frameworks. And since for many of these uh, these particular policy domains, they are the first to do so, they are also trying to be these pioneers. So really trying to set the course and then trying to push other states uh, or to promote that they would emulate those efforts. So for example, on personal data protection. So they have been really promoting the idea also of themselves as being this global norm setter, this global exporter. So, and uh, within academic circles, sometimes also referred to as like normative power Europe. Uh, so this is, uh, I would say, one of the policy domains where you see this uh, happening very actively. So really try to uh, assert the decision-making powers by setting those legislative frameworks, by setting those norms, uh, and by trying to get those uh, institutionalized. Because, of course, it's one thing that you can force, for example, companies to abide by them within the EU. 
but it's something else if you want to have this also protected on the global level. Uh, this then uh, means something quite else, uh, where you also have to contest with other states that have very different opinions. Uh, and that's where it's much more difficult. So the EU is also trying to do this on a global level, trying to be this global norm exporter, but they have some competition. Could you elaborate a bit on that competition? I mean, we know, I mean, from what you've already said, mainly between USA and the PRC, or China, you have two very different entities to the EU, right? So could you elaborate on the relationship in the international sphere? Yeah, so of course, for a very long time, uh, there was much more of an alignment or perceived alignment between the US and the EU uh, as compared to like these authoritarian ideas uh, promoted by, for example, China, but also uh, Russia. Uh, so you really can differentiate between, on the one hand, those who support this liberal idea of digital technologies, very much promoted by the US. Uh, so there's a global internet, everything needs to be connected, all companies need to be operating uh, or need to operate on a global level, uh, which of course also fits very well uh, with the dominant position of US companies. So trying to indeed expand into global markets and uh, maintain also their dominant position there. For quite some time, this was perceived to be quite okay for the EU. But of course, recently, uh, we've seen much more pushback uh, where the EU is uh, saying, like, well, actually, we want to be able to have much more of a say because our values, even though we are quite aligned, they are not the same. So for example, in the US, the idea of freedom of expression is much more extensive than what we are used to in the EU. And uh, even within the EU, we, of course, have very different understanding from one state to the other. Uh, so if you would compare Germany to France, it would be quite different. But still, within the EU, we now want to be able to actually enforce that to some extent, or to be able to do it more than, than has been the case. Uh, so there has been increasing friction on that end. Uh, but you can still create an opposition, or there is an opposition, between this more liberal idea, so promoting freedom of expression, uh, just having this as the starting point, and then the more authoritarian leaning, the sovereigntist. So I wanted to reassert sovereign uh, sovereign power also in this digital domain and to have that embedded in all, all dimensions of it. And that's where we find China, but we find many, many countries there. Uh, you find Russia there uh, and many states across the world who feel that they, their position is being threatened. Uh, so this can be either authoritarian states trying to uh, gain more control, for example, to be able to uh, restrict online communications during elections, during protests. But to some extent, uh, some of their concerns may also be correct. So, for example, we know that U.S. social media firms, they do not always have sufficient content moderation capacity to actually facilitate uh, safe communications, even in democratic states that are uh, for example, African democratic states. And issues of polarization, they can be very, very dangerous, like actually dangerous. Uh, so when those platforms are not able to actually provide a sufficient content moderation to have like a proper communicative space, then you might also say, well, well perhaps their, their concerns are legitimate. But these are, these are very rough ideal types, right? Uh, so to say that, well, these are the liberals and these are the sovereignties. Uh, because there's actually quite a lot of diversity among them. But uh, even between China and Russia, you could still find some differences. So Russia is the one that I know best, because most of my research uh, focuses on uh, on Russia. Uh, and there they've been really pushing 
uh, towards promoting domestic production. So being able to produce everything within Russia, and this goes from hardware to software to actually having platforms. They've been doing this for quite some years. It's also not something that's very new for at least a decade. They've been pushing in this direction. But it has been very difficult for them because China went sovereign much earlier. So their entire internet has been uh, has been developed more or less independently. They've pushed out foreign competitors very, very early on. They have a very large sector, so that also means that in terms of the scale, it's actually doable. Uh, for Russia, it has been very different since they have their domestic internet sector, but they also had foreign providers, and their internet really developed in, like fully integrated with the global internet, with all these global digital infrastructures. And it has actually proven to be very difficult to disentangle themselves. And that has made them very vulnerable. And we see that actually happening in a very explicit way over the past months uh, as a result of all the, the sanctions that have been po- imposed on Russia that also very largely hit the tech sector. So we see everything collapsing uh, as a result of these global dependencies. So in that sense, Russia's war against Ukraine is indeed, in many ways, uh, like it should open our eyes to what these dependencies mean. But at the same time, I think it's also a wake-up call in the sense of, even if you have a state that has been pushing towards digital sovereignty for a decade, it is almost impossible to be actually digitally sovereign. Uh, so this is not the way to go, right? So indeed, isolating yourself is not the way to go. Uh, much more, as Versager pr- uh, promoted as well, is much more about diversifying supply, uh, about crea- increasing resilience uh, and all of that. Uh, so I think that the current moment is actually very interesting to follow and to see uh, like the realities behind the digital sovereignty talk. To go back to what you said a bit earlier on the perceived alignment between the USA and and Europe, for example, I guess on another level is also what happened in the early 2000s, what was then shown, for example, by Edward Snowden. Also the spying of US intelligence agencies practically in collaboration with US technology companies on Europeans, on everyone. How do you think that also affects the almost reactionary idea of digital sovereignty? Definitely. So the the Snowden revelations, they are really, really a turning point in our understanding because before there was this very artificial differentiation between, well, these are the democratic states and then these are the authoritarian states and basically grouping them together. So the fact that data was hosted and processed in the US, that was not seen as a problem because we are are allies and so on and, and it's a democracy and everything is okay. But this really changed everything when it became clear that the, the NSA was actually monitoring, collecting much, much more, and that indeed this also concerns EU citizens. Uh, so this idea that data should be allowed to freely travel between the EU and the US, that suddenly became uh, an issue of contention, that perhaps actually this is not something that we should want, that uh, EU citizens should be protected. But here you actually also touch upon a much more fundamental question, that really hasn't been decided upon on the global level. Uh, So this is about what states are allowed to do in cyberspace. And there's this very fine line also between uh, like the digital uh, counterpart to intelligence gathering and then cyber attacks. Uh, And then preparing for cyber attacks might actually look like preparing for uh, gathering cyber intelligence and so on. Uh, So you very easily come up on these very uh, gray areas uh, where it can be for multiple purposes. And some purposes we think, well, this is accepted state practice, and other purposes uh, are not accepted state practice or have not been fully defined yet on a global level. 
And so there are many of these gray areas where everything is really unclear. So what is allowed, what is not allowed. And this is also why these, uh, these particular events have such a massive impact. They really shift the way that we think about topics. So I wanted to go back a bit to the internet as a global open space that European Union is pushing forward or promoting. And I wanted to ask, what is the difference between the internet being a public or an open space? And is there a difference? Yeah, so when we think about the internet, then we indeed, we say, well, it's a network of networks uh, that creates this global interconnectedness. And then in principle, uh, you should be able to access any information anywhere uh, if it has been open to you. So if you're allowed to access it. Uh, so in principle, it should be global and open and that you can communicate with everyone across the globe. Of course, in practice, this is already not really the case. So it depends on which platforms do you use. Uh, it also depends on which language do you speak. So we already have quite some fragmented internets, actually. So depending on which language sphere you're in. But still, in principle, this is still quite open. And at the same time, you see these other states now pushing back, uh, wanting to have more control. So, for example, China really has this closed internet where communications with the outside world are restricted in various ways. At the same time, speaking about open and, and public, uh, that is still quite different. Uh, I would say that perhaps the U.S. perspective is more on like open, so that we should have very limited state intervention, for example. Uh, but if you say that, well, it needs to be open communication, but actually, why do we cherish open public uh, communication? This is, for example, because it supports democratic deliberation. Mm -hmm. It supports our ability to hold uh, those in power to account and so on. Uh, so this then touches upon our values. So why do we actually cherish it? But we also know that to be able to have that kind of deliberation, those kinds of communications, and that actually does not happen when you just let everything develop on its own course. Mm -hmm. It actually requires quite a lot of intervention. And so this is where you come more towards the idea of public, uh, where you say, well, actually, we need to set some boundaries to be able to have the Internet fulfill the functions that we will want it to function. Uh, so to be able to have it supporting democracy, for example, you actually will need quite some moderation, for example. Uh, so I would say that that is more or less the difference here. Then how can you find the line where these restraints or these boundaries you set? How do you know when can you stop? And are there any instances where you can talk about like state digital sovereignty versus the citizen digital sovereignty? Because then the freedom of speech discourse comes up again. Like, what can I say? How can I say it? And in setting these boundaries, where, when do you know how to stop and where to draw the line? That's an excellent question. So if we just think back of the, the traditional way in which this is done, right? So before, before the internet, uh, before the internet, the final say was with the judge. Uh, so a judge would be able to define, so what is the boundary between your freedom of expression and then these other things that are also enshrined. So for example, that you are not allowed to incite to violence or discrimination and so on. So it is these competing rights that limit, especially within the, within the EU, that place certain limits upon freedom of expression. And this would then be decided by a court in the end. So what is this fine line? Of course, now with the internet, it becomes much more complicated since, first of all, it is transnational. So we have this, for example, a US firm, but then we have a user who is in France and they may be speaking in a different language and then the person that they are addressing is again somewhere else. So that already makes things quite complicated. 
And to some extent, this was then done by the guidelines that these platforms set. And we might push them to be more strict in their guidelines, forcing them to comply by national law and then basically by going through their guidelines to have it enshrined there. But of course, the enforcement of that, that is then again very complicated just because we have so many, many comments and things being uh, being posted all the time. So just the scale of it uh, makes it impossible to just have like a manual reviewer doing everything. So lots of it needs to be automated, which then also means that you have to translate these values. So our very subjective, culturally contextualized understanding of what is allowed and what is not allowed this then has to be operationalized in something that a model is able to detect. Uh, so this, of course, makes it it's a very big challenge. So we might uh, complain about like, their capacity uh, to do things correctly or that they might over-moderate. But at the same time, it is also a very, very large challenge that we, that we pose to social media to be able to differentiate and to do that correctly. But at the same time, it's important, of course. So if you as a citizen feel that you are being censored, and especially if you feel that you're being censored by this foreign company uh, that does not respond to your to your uh, complaints and so on, then it becomes very problematic. Uh, so part of the EU response has also been to to improve these kind of mechanisms, so that if you uh, feel that you have been um, unjustly uh, moderated, so for example that something has been removed or that your account has been blocked, uh, to improve those mechanisms for you to actually have a right to redress so that uh, wrongful uh, decisions might actually be undone. So that uh, like improving your position as a citizen vis-a-vis this uh, anonymous platform. Uh, so th- that is where, where the rights of citizens do, do come in. Uh, but at the same time, it is really, really difficult uh, if you look uh, under the hood and see how things have to be operationalized. It is very complicated to do it well. And then also in different linguistic and cultural settings right so even if we have all these let's say automated systems in place in i don't know france it would be difficult or uh, probably impossible to export that to completely somewhere else so for each area each cultural context you'd have to then (laughs) have an individual system Exactly. It's it's very, very complicated. Um, and also we should not forget that, uh, so we speak about citizens, but actually there are many workers, uh, underpaid workers oftentimes, uh, who have to review the content that is really boundary. So is this like uh, permissible or is it not permissible? Um, and you really hear very uh, like horrible stories because, for example, when you have graphic imagery, and then this often also ends up with these outsourced companies with these underpaid employees who have to review these materials and therefore are exposed to very graphic, nasty materials and then having to decide, does this comply with uh, with our platform policy or not? Uh, so it's very important to, on the one hand, uh, problems come from the fact that it needs to be automated at scale. And then we say, well, shouldn't there be a human in the loop, right? This is the term that's often used. Uh, but when you speak about having a human in the loop, that also means that a human has to be exposed to this particular content. And we're speaking about content that you say, well, this is damaging for the public. Uh, So this means that someone needs to be exposed to potentially damaging content. Um, So there are many, many intricacies to this discussion and also how you actually turn it into something that can be implemented in practice. Uh, But indeed, uh, linguistic differences, cultural differences, if you just think about the, the different ways of expressing yourself, uh, 
Uh, if you think about humor, there are so many uh, intricacies to the way that we use language and the way that we communicate. Uh, that is uh, very difficult to do that in a way that does justice to what people are want to communicate and also what we think is permissible and what we think is offensive or harmful. Uh, just one last point on the idea of the internet as an open space. You mentioned how, for example, China, Chinese internet is isolated. Uh, it has its own complete infrastructure on the internet. But let's look at states that m maybe came online later. What kind of actual tools do they have to implement this kind of digital sovereignty? Um, so the position of, of states is very, very different. So it, it really depends on the level of like, development, uh, level of prosperity, uh, level of expertise, but also just the, like, the, the size of your domestic market, for example. Uh, so if you would just compare Germany to, to Lithuania, then, of course, those are very different countries. At the same time, uh, if you compare Lithuania to, to Singapore, uh, it doesn't, it's not just about scale, right? But there are many, many differences uh, in terms of when states digitize, to what extent. Uh, also, how this is done. So is this done really state-led? Uh, is this really private-led? Uh, is this done with much foreign investment or not? Uh, so the way it develops is really, really different. Uh, and as a result, we also see very different patterns in terms of like digital dependence. So actually, by now, I prefer to, to speak about digital dependence rather than digital sovereignty, because it's more accurate in a way. So there are different degrees of digital uh, digital dependence. But it really also interlinks with then your geopolitical alignment. So it only becomes problematic when those foreign actors when you think that they are acting against your interests or if there are certain tensions between state and private actors that they're not able to control. Uh, so there are many of these different layers to it uh, that really play out differently for every single state. But for European states of course it's different because now many things that we would not be able to do on the state level, so the degree of uh, independence or resilience that you would be uh, able to get at uh, just if you take one individual state. If you now join, uh, so if you take all of these states combined uh, and having these interests protected and promoted by the EU and having investment uh, supported by the EU, making decisions about foreign direct investment that might be, uh, that might be uh, leading to vulnerable situations, that of course increases their capacity. Uh, so you really see how the EU here uh, may act as a positive force, uh, so strengthening the capacity of these individual states uh, to be less dependent or to be able to, to navigate the challenges of, of dependency better. Maybe this would be a nice way to connect it to how your entry point to the internet defines what the internet is for you. You're speaking of maybe different levels of technological advancement in different states. And in our conversation that we had before this recording, you mentioned that different individuals have different entry points to the internet. So, if, for example, older generations who have access to Facebook, this is what defines the internet for them. Versus a person who is uh, well technologically versed would have a different definition of what the internet is and how the reality articulates within that. I wanted to ask you if the, the policy makers in that country have a narrow definition of what the internet is than the citizens have. How would that translate into the policies that this, this country makes and how would that impact its digital sovereignty? 
So indeed, uh, the, what we think the internet is, it would, perhaps we should do a study and ask random people on the street and, and have them define uh, what the internet is. But it tends to be very different because it really depends on what you use it for. You might think that the internet is mostly social media. So if you just mostly use your phone and uh, access the internet via apps, uh, that actually means that you do not uh, connect to a large part of what the internet actually is. And you see, you see the shift more and more. So it used to be desktop. Uh, how do you access it? You access it through a browser. You search for information that then allows you to, to some extent to access quite a wide or a very diverse uh, array of sources. Of course, then the search engine again becomes important, right? So uh, leading you to some, some things, but not to others. Uh, but more and more, we just use our phones to access the internet. And how do you do it on your phone? You use apps. And for many people, the internet uh, pretty much uh, is the same as saying just social media. Uh, so we see this happening in quite many countries, uh, especially where they did not have this phase of desktop computers as much. So where internet access actually went along with having mobile phones. And there, this dominance of uh, social media as being this entry point for information, uh, we see that happening quite a lot. So where, for example, for, for news, uh, citizens are, uh, are just using social media as their entry point for news, uh, which of course then leads to very different kinds of news consumption patterns. It also means that we should be looking at how do those social media and their recommender systems, how do they actually disseminate news? So then suddenly that becomes very important. Um, so for the, the individual, I would say that individuals tend to have perhaps a more narrow understanding of what the internet is than governments, because I would assume that most governments uh, are aware that you actually need an infrastructure to be able to have it to function. So you need to have your telecommunications infrastructure in place. So the technical side of things is something that for, for most average users, uh, they do not really think about that. They think about their phone, they think about Wi-Fi, and that's basically it. That's the end of it. Um, I would assume that for most governments, they know that, of course, there's much more to it. Uh, and on all of those different levels, you have these different actors, different private companies, different different laws that might apply, you have different dependencies. So it becomes much more complicated uh, on, on the government side. As these different actors attempt to assert their own digital sovereignty, what does this then mean for the internet? Do you see, see it fracturing or becoming smaller, more isolated parts? Or is it just too too big? As you explained with Russia, it's just so hard to disentangle yourself from all these interconnected systems that at this point it feels like a Sisyphean task to try to to make these kind of islands. So the, the worry for quite some time was that this, this push towards digital sovereignty, especially on the part of authoritarian states, and also how to do it within those international uh, organizations, that this would lead to fragmentation, so fragmentation of the internet itself. So that everything would splinter, then we would get a splinter net with all these di different internets. At this moment, it's, it's not really clear where things are heading. Uh, and at the same time, I think we also should be quite honest that having the US dominated internet being countered uh, is not necessarily a negative uh, development. Uh, so I think that the push for more diversification is not in itself necessarily negative. At the same time, um, I really appreciate the push within the EU for interoperability. 
so having the principle of interoperability so that you're able to, like, basically that device is interconnected, one system is able to communicate with another system, uh, that having this principle at the core of things, that that is very important uh, and is perhaps more important than which particular platform is dominant. Um, but at the same time, yeah, will it fragment? We, we really do not know. At the same time, indeed, as I mentioned for Russia, uh, it, it looks to be quite impossible for most states to become like, fully independent, fully autonomous. This does not mean that they cannot make big strides towards that end. I think you, uh, you see, for example, that more and more states, especially if they are sufficiently large, that they become more successful in pressuring these foreign platform companies, for example. So if you just think about Turkey that has become quite successful in doing this, Brazil has been pushing, uh, India has been pushing quite successfully as well. Uh, so here we do see that uh, states are becoming more assertive and that they have increased leverage. Uh, so of course they also learn from each other. So for example, um, what Russia has learned is that you're able to force U.S. companies much better if you're able to take their employees hostage. So if you require them to have a local representatives, then that actually means that you can then threaten to, to prosecute these uh, and basically like hold them hostage. And this then tends to work. Uh, so these are the kinds of, uh, of things that states also learn from one state to the other. So if it will fragment in total, probably not. But if we might see uh, like more defined differences between those already existing national spaces, again, as I mentioned, like language and culture and so on, that already does quite some things in terms of creating these different spheres. Um, but we may, it's quite likely that we'll see more of an assertion of that. Uh, and this is also why I think it's very important that we keep promoting digital rights, since oftentimes the more that these, na these national boundaries are being uh, asserted, Oftentimes, this also goes hand in hand with the restriction of various human rights. So this goes all the way from just general freedom of expression to gender equality. Uh, it, it goes to religious freedoms and so on. Um, so we really need to be careful that digital rights uh, are not something that we should take for granted. It's actually something that we need to continue to fight for, uh, even also within the EU. Because, of course, our concerns about uh, foreign interference and so on, this leads to a framing of, of all communications from the perspective of national security. And this often tends to lead to more infringements of human rights. So, for example, if you think that um, foreign states are constantly trying to interfere, so constantly trying to uh, influence your population via social media, then the national security idea would be that then obviously you now need to monitor these communications better. So now you've justified by moving it to national security, you've justified very far-reaching monitoring of your own population and their communications, even though they are actually, these are, this is a civilian space in a way. Uh, so I'm sometimes quite worried about this tension between security on the one hand and then the protection of human rights in the digital space on the other hand. I think we should be very alert because uh, things might become much worse very fast. Thank you very much. We tend to take the internet for granted and really overlook how human rights can figure into the digital space. So thank you for bringing that point in. So that concludes the questions we had for you. And now we move on to our parting segment, uh, which we call secondary sources. 
where we would ask you to recommend to our listeners something which they can engage with to further explore the topics we are discussing, so digital sovereignty in this case. And it can be anything from an article, research paper, video, documentary film, anything. So what would you recommend for us? <laughs> so of course, uh, being an academic, I went for some academic things. Uh, but So I hope <laughs> that they are interesting enough. So actually, one of the, the scholars that I really like and has been really like a leading scholar within internet, uh, internet governance is Laura Donardis, who's an American scholar. And for example, she has a, a great book. It's already from 2014 called uh, The Global War for Internet Governance. What I think she does very well is to show how things that appear to be quite technical actually become then the subject of political contestation, where all these states try to influence what kinds of norms actually get embedded in the way that the internet functions. Uh, she has written quite many books. All of them are good, but this one is a really nice entrance point. Then a second thing I wanted to recommend, and this is because we oftentimes, we look only at our own environment. So we look very much to the state where we live in and uh, we tend to think that the world functions in the same way, but actually it's not the case. So I wanted to also recommend an article that looks at uh, the activities of Facebook in Africa, because Facebook has been trying to promote its own version of the internet. So that's basically, indeed, you would access the internet via Facebook. So it's called Free Basics. And the idea would be that this would be then indeed free, so that the users would not have to pay for it. And it would give you access to a limited number of services. So for example, of course, Facebook, but also some governmental services and perhaps some news portals and so on. But this, of course, that means that the internet itself becomes very limited. So it's a violation of this idea of net neutrality. So that all, no matter which website you, you want to go to, it basically costs you the same. Everything costs the same. And this is a clear violation of that by saying these services you can use for free. And then if you want to use these other services, then you have to pay. Uh, so I think that that's another one that I really recommend people to to read by Notias. It's called Access Granted, Facebook uh, Free Basics in Africa, which I think is a really good one. Thank you. All the links, of course, will be in the description of this episode. So here we come to the end of our episode. So thank you so much, Dr. Mariela, for giving us the time to have this conversation with you. It was a pleasure. Thank you. And thank you so much, our listeners, for clicking on this episode. And stay tuned for more episodes with Understanding Europe. Talk to you soon. The music for the MD podcast episode has been produced by Stone Ocean. And this podcast episode has been produced, recorded, and edited by Brendan Hogan and yours truly, Sharal Abdullah. Talk to you soon. <laughs>